Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, sponsored by Flying Penguin Graphics, audio production by Kieran Nemont. And here's your host, Curtis Brown. Hello, folks, and welcome to I Want to Be a Producer, the podcast for emerging producers and creatives wanting to know how it all begins and how to get where they're going. My name is Curtis Brown, and I am your host, and I am joined, of course, by my own personal South African variant of COVID-19, Kieran Nemont. How are you, sir? Fantastic. And you, Mr. Brown? I am good. Well, you know, I am your Canadian variant, if we're (laughs) going to do that. Anyway, season two... Usually sequels suck, okay? But that's not going to happen. I swear to God. I looked up some shows that had better second seasons, and that's what this will be. Fleabag, Succession, and I haven't even seen Succession. But I know it's on HBO, so it must be good. Um, so be good, I want you got some good guests lined up, man. You got some. Good yeah, guests. I know, I know. It, it, it's going to be good. I want you guys. So speaking of guests, I want you to make sure that you check the show notes because that's where we will be giving our social media pages as well as our guest social media pages. And if you're not following our socials, we are IWBAP underscore podcast on Twitter, IWBAP underscore on Instagram, and I want to be a producer podcast on Facebook. And we also have a Tinder profile where we feature Kieran and I in a big group of friends. No, no, Uh, Come on. on. You're not even letting me finish the joke. I didn't even get to the part that we spoke to before we started recording. Anyway, what I wanted to say was that our Tinder profile is just Kieran and I photoshopped with our guests holding cats and saying witty things like, someone date me so I don't have to bring my mother to costume parties anymore. Uh, I just also want to say uh, thank you. Of course, we have our sponsor, Flying Penguin Graphics, who you can find on Instagram under flying underscore penguin underscore graphics. They are our sponsor again for the second season. And I want to say to Dan Mackey, thank you for uh, providing my closet with a bunch of shirts, my cupboards with mugs, and basically anything I want because that guy is a literal magician when it comes to customizable items. Um, season two, Kieran, this is going to be huge. This is going to be bigger than The Simpsons. And The Simpsons holds the Guinness Book of World Records for most guest stars. But we're going to beat it, okay? This season two, season two, we're going to have over... Okay, so the Guinness Book of World Records is 712 guest stars for The Simpsons in 2019. You're telling me I must edit 712 episodes. <laughs> More like someone's going to have to listen to 712 of these. That's more the bigger issue. Forget about you and I. We're going to have to put people through torture. For our <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, season two, man. This is it. And I'm, we're going to kick it off with our very special guest. He's literally started. He's an innovator and it, like ended up making mandates within the industry that still stick today. He had a, he had a TEDx Broadway convention where he actually predicted things that happened from like in 2012 that is that are literally happening now in the industry which is so cool uh he's really kind he's really nice i mean he had his two tony awards sitting behind him which i wish you could all see uh but he's super wonderful so uh kieran take it away i consider our guest today the steve jobs of broadway No, it's not just because he was in a national commercial for the iPhone, and no, he will not make you buy your playbill separately from your ticket. But it's because he's an innovator like Steve, which has led him to become a Tony Award-winning Broadway producer as well as an author and entrepreneur. He attended John Hopkins University for one year with the intention of practicing law before transferring to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, where he graduated with a Bachelor in Fine Arts and Acting. He started as a production assistant on the 1993 Broadway revival of My Fair Lady and established himself as a company and general manager working on shows like Showboat and Ragtime. 
Have you heard of him? In 2004, he founded Davenport Theatrical Enterprises, where he wrote and produced off-Broadway The Awesome 80s Prom, which ran worldwide and recouped for investors at almost 500%, not a big deal, Alter Boys, which he co-conceived, and My First Time, which he also produced and authored. This led him to earn his first Broadway producing credit with the show 13. Since then, he has won two Tony Awards for Once on this Island in Kinky Boots and nominated four other times with Groundhog Day, Deaf West Theater Spring Awakening, The Visit, and Mothers and Sons. He is also the author of over 21 books and ebooks on producing, Broadway investing, writing, and how to raise money for shows. Outside of the theater, he has produced award-winning content for both film and television. His unique production and marketing style has garnered him international attention in numerous publications, including Vanity Fair and the New York Times. He serves as the executive producer for North America for Andrew Lloyd Webber Really Useful Group, created the best-selling Broadway board game Be a Broadway Star, and is most likely a way better golfer than me because he hits golf balls every morning for 45 minutes. Welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, Ken Davenport. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so fun to have you. Did you hit any golf balls this morning? I absolutely did, yes. Oh, did. Are, you, are you a scratch golfer? Are you pretty good? I'm not a scratch golfer, but I'm, a, I'm an eight handicap, so I'm, wow, making, so you're I'm pretty making good. some progress. Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting That's there. really awesome. Well, I'm so thrilled that I get to have you on the show to start off season two. I don't think there's any other better way. I mean, you, I wish people could see this, but you've got your two Tony Awards sitting right behind you. But I actually want to start at the beginning of your journey. So in your book, How to Succeed in Arts or in Anything, you tell this great story about meeting with Hal Prince after sending him a letter that you want to be a creative producer. So after all the great ideas you told him, the advice he gave you was Ken just start. Produce something, produce anything, but start now. So how did you start and get into producing? Well, the irony is I'd had this idea years before for a show, uh, an interactive show, because they were very popular at the time, you'd call them immersive now. An interactive show like Tony and Tina's Wedding or Joey and, Joey and Maria's Wedding or any of those rip-off wedding shows. <laughs> and I had an idea to set one at a uh, another milestone event. So there was a wedding show, a funeral show, a bar mitzvah show. And I wanted to do one at a prom because that was a big milestone in my life and certainly American culture. And then I thought, oh, we could set that back in time. We do it in the eighties, like my era and all that fun music and oh, Amer uh, American Idol or Survivor was just starting now. And we can have a, you vote for who wins king and queen at the end. Like, oh, wouldn't that be, oh, that'd be great. And then I never did anything with it. And the reason, look, 99% of the world has great ideas, right? What separates the 99% from the 1% is the 1% actually does something with their ideas. Like every day, every single person listening to this, walking in, like I have an idea for an app, for a novel, for a movie, how to fix healthcare in this country. You guys have fixed it already. <laughs> um, like all these things, but very few people do anything about it. And I was one of those people. Like that was me. Until, and look, I was very fortunate to sit in uh, Hal Prince's office and have him look at me and say, literally, stop talking. Because I, I pitched him like 20 ideas. Right. And he was like, stop talking, just do something. Because he recognized a creativity in me and an imagination in me. But he was like, this guy is going to get nowhere if he just keeps yapping his mouth. Right. He's got to do something. And that day I went home and I started doing something, which was I started putting together a show called The Awesome 80s Prom. And let me be very clear when I say I started doing this, I didn't know what I was doing at all when I started doing it. And, you know, I have my own podcast. I've recorded like 200 episodes with Pulitzer mm -hmm. Prize winners and Tony winners and all that stuff. 
the most commonly uttered phrase from all of my most successful guests has been, I didn't know what I was doing. And I actually preach now that the moment in your life you're like, oh, I want to do this, but I don't know what to do it. That is the fork in the road. And the people that plow ahead, even though they don't know what they're doing, those are the ones that break through to enormous success. Most of the people will not. They will get nervous and scared. They will hide the ideas. They will seek out like too much research. They just won't do anything about it. And that's what separates it. And luckily, how got me going. And very specifically, what I did was I posted an ad in a newspaper saying I need actors. People responded. I then had an audition. People came. Then I had to have a callback. I cast people. Then I had to have a rehearsal. And the story that I write about in my book goes, at the day of the first rehearsal, 20 minutes before it began, I was downstairs at a McDonald's reading a book called How to Improv because I wanted the show based on improv. I didn't know what I was going to do at the first rehearsal 20 minutes before the first rehearsal started. Wow. And you, and you know, you say, wow. And I, even I go like, what? A, I can't believe I did that. But the fact is, what was the big deal? No one was going to live or die by if I, the first rehearsal sucked or not. Yeah, that's true. Like, I, my dad was a cardiologist and I did not choose that path because I did not want to make life or death decisions. <laughs> I chose the entertainment industry. And that's, it's about just making decisions saying, what's the worst that's going to happen? Right. More often than not, really good things happen. A common theme that I'm noticing throughout all our guests is the importance of internships and mentors throughout their career. And one of our guests actually in season one, Jennifer Ashley Tepper, even interned for you. So how important were mentors to your career? They were hugely important. And I I learned a lot about mentors when I was an acting major at NYU. Like, you know, I went to one, I went to the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute to study the method. And I had one acting teacher that was like, it's the method, it's the method, it's the method. And then I had another acting teacher that was like, meh, yeah, use the method. But also you should check out Stella Adler and you should check out Meisner and check out all of it and make your own. And that's what I did. And that's what I really tell all people coming up in any business to do. You know, I had Hal, but I also had uh, Tommy Toon and Robert Fox and Hal Luftig and Kristen Kasky and all of these incredible people that I met, that I worked for, that I was able to watch and learn and listen from. Right. uh, And ask questions. I've been a very curious person since I was an elementary school kid. And I ask a lot of questions. And thankfully, these people gave me answers. You mentioned 99% of people have great ideas, but only 1% actually end up executing them. And I feel like it's that way because a lot of people, when it comes to financing, don't know where to start. So on the Producers Perspective YouTube page, you give a tip to people that they should set a timer for 15 minutes and try to write down 100 names of people who they think could give them money. So when you're sitting down with a potential investor, how exactly do you navigate that delicate conversation to convince someone to invest in your show? So raising money is one of those questions that I get asked a lot about. And it's probably one of the biggest hurdles that people have when contemplating going into any business. Because yes, a producer of theater, I'm a CEO, I have to raise the money for my shows and people go, oh my gosh. Well, you mentioned Steve Jobs at the top of this. Guess what? Steve had to raise some serious bank 
Mm-hmm. Like he had to raise cash. So did Mark Zuckerberg. So did Sarah Blakely. So did all of these incredible mm-hmm. entrepreneurs and people that you know when they start their business, whatever that business is. So it just so happens I'm in theater. So I call myself a serial startup guy. Every show that I do is 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 raising new set of capital. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to develop an app and you want to develop a new social media site, you're going to have to raise capital. Right. Exactly. Uh, and the funny thing is that I, you know, I, because I raise a lot of money from a lot of high net worth individuals, mm-hmm. I, I get a chance to ask them lots of questions. Yeah. Because like I said, I'm a very curious person. So I was sitting down with someone who's worth well over $100 million. And what they do is invest with other people, right? They invest right. in other people. They are private equity people, this, this um, man and group. And I said to them, what do you look for? Like when you get pitched a new company, what do you look for? Mm-hmm. And they, and I was expecting like, oh, this algorithm, proprietary software, blah, 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 blah. And he said, I look for who's, who's running the company. That's it. I look at the person. Right. And this is what I learned from the very first $25,000 I ever raised. I asked, I asked for the investment and my potential investor said, I'm going to give you the money, but I don't think this project is going to work. And I was like, what, then why are you doing it? Well, I don't mm. understand. Cause I ask a lot of questions. Yeah. And he said, because I don't invest in projects, I invest in people. And that is what you have to remember is that people invest in people and they invest in your passion and your honesty, your trustworthiness, your desire to get it done. The fact that you will get it done. Mm-hmm. And this man was giving me money because he knew I was going to get it done. Now, right. it might not work out for him in the short term, but in the long run, I was going to get it done. And he wanted to be someone who was involved with me. And he was. And He's been an investor in mine for years and I've made him a significant amount of capital. So that's what it's about. So how you navigate it is you just believe in your product, you're passionate about it, you're prepared for it, Mm -hmm. uh, and you let people invest in you. Right. I guess that's kind of similar to the Elon Musk Tesla thing. I mean, the guy makes 50,000 cars, but his stock price is worth 800 after it's been split. But GM, you know, they make 500,000 cars, but their stock price isn't worth half nearly as much. But you're investing in Elon because it's, it's Elon Musk, right? Well, answer me this question. Who's, mm. the, head of G, who's the head of GM? Yeah. Couldn't who's the head of Ford? Oh, they Nobody just got knows. a new guy. Well, yeah. they did just get a new guy. But yeah, you're right. I don't know his name. Who knows? Who cares? Yeah, like, you're right. No one cares. Yeah, Elon right. Musk made himself the product. Right. And people are investing in him. And he's a little unstable. Let's face it. Yeah, he's I mean, all over the map. He's actually a person you're like, do you want to invest in that guy? <laughs> but the fact is, you can tell he's so far ahead of mm-hmm. all of us mm-hmm. that he's going to come through somehow, somewhere. He's going to do it. Right. And you want to be on that ride. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, you're very similar to that in the way that you, you mentioned in a Variety uh, article that there are two reasons that people don't invest in Broadway. And one is financial threshold. And two is they don't know how to. And for Godspell, you were the first person to raise money via crowdfunding, two and a half million dollars to be exact. And in a blog recently, you mentioned that you even had someone invest in your show in Bitcoin. So how has the landscaping of financing changed over the years? And where do you think it's headed? Well, both of those things, uh, specifically the crowdfunding one, you know, people ask me all the time, like, oh, that's why you, you chose crowdfunding to raise the money. And the fact is I didn't. 
Like mm. I, I chose crowdfunding as a marketing initiative. Right. I wanted to assemble the largest group of followers, the biggest tribe ever on a Broadway show. And we did. We had 737 investors in that show. And I could have raised money in another way, but right. I didn't. I chose to do it this way. So, and again, it was more marketing than anything. How is financing is is changing and there's and it will probably change again. I think what we're seeing a little bit more of, and I'm doing it as well, is because people have asked me, will you crowdfund again? And one, I don't like to repeat myself. But two, you are seeing more funds come into the market mm-hmm. where people are saying, let's, and, and I'm one of them. I've developed a couple of vehicles for my investors and partly because they asked for it. They, they were investing in me and they got tired of saying like, Ken, I, I, I love talking to you, but you call me every couple of months when you, you know, hey, are you ready? You know, I'm going to say yes. Why don't you just take a pot of money? I'm always going to be with you. Take a pot right. of money and go. And I did that. And I raised money with a, f- a fund and it w- allowed me to action a whole bunch of projects much faster. And it was so successful. We're doing another one. And, and I'm seeing a, a more of this. Now, the mistake is that, again, the principles don't change. People invest in people, right? their ability to get it done. So I've also seen some of these funds not work because the people that were doing them were pitching the vehicle. And it's never the vehicle. Right. That's never it. Mm -hmm. It's about the person driving it, right? Right. It's about the jockey of the horse as much as it is about the horse. It's about who's sitting behind the car. And- you are one of the co-founders of TEDx Broadway, and in a presentation in 2012, you had one called 20 Years Pass, and you showed 1992 to 2012, and then you showed 2012 to 2032, and in 2016, there was a prediction that shows that uh, shows would be filmed and sold, which is what is happening. Hey, look at that. You were right. You were uh, right. I know, and 2021 was, uh, was, uh, was apparently supposed to be booming for New York tourism, so... Well, no one could predict a no one could predict a global pandemic. So, All right. Th- uh, thanks for rubbing my face. In that no, keep, no, keeping no. Keeping me humble. No, no, no. Uh, and you're right. So that's exactly what's happening. So, do you think this is a good thing for Broadway and the music theater industry at large, or do you think it can tarnish it because people can simply watch it on their couch? No, I I was the first person to actually stream a show live, a Broadway show, Daddy a Long Legs, Broadway yeah. show with Daddy Long Legs in 2015. So maybe I did that because I wanted to hit my 2016 prediction, <laughs> um, but. I've written about this several times on my blog and, and spoken about it at length, and I, but I'm happy to speak about it again because I so believe that streaming and the distribution of theatrical content in a two-dimensional form on movies, on televisions, on phones, wherever, is overall nothing but good. Right. Yes. Will there be some people that watch Daddy Long Legs or watch Hamilton that say like, eh, I've seen it now. I don't need to go see it live. Of course. Mm-hmm. In the same way that there are people that are like, yeah, I like to watch baseball when it's, you know, I'm on my couch and I can get up and go to the bathroom without a line and blah, blah, blah. But there will be so many more people that Hamilton whets their appetite, that Daddy Longlegs whets their appetite and goes, oh, my gosh, this so affected me. I must go in right. the same way that as a 10 year old kid from Massachusetts, when I saw that green monster in Fenway Park from my couch, I was right. like, I have to go there. Right. I have to see what that is like. I have to smell that Cracker Jack and hear mm-hmm. the crack of the bat and cheer with the fans and stretch in the seventh inning. Like, I need to do that. 
Right. And that's what has happened and what will happen more of. It's not going to replace it. It's actually going to enhance it. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that, I mean, actually this time last year, I went and saw a concert and my God, how much I want to be, you know, I can go put in the CD, but it's like, that doesn't do anything like being there and actually hearing the bass and that drum, like hit your chest. Right. So I guess, I guess, yeah, you're right. I mean, there is that need to feel energy from each other. And during that same presentation, you mentioned that when you first arrived in New York in 1992, that the top price for a play was 50 bucks and the top price for a musical was 65 bucks. Well, today, Broadway tickets can cost up to a thousand bucks to sit in the orchestra. So as a Broadway producer, how do you keep your ticket prices affordable to attract the average person coming to see your show, but also recoup your investment? So I'm glad you brought up those examples because it's very common to talk about Broadway tickets being expensive and then say, yeah, to sit in the orchestra of a Broadway show, it's going to be close to a thousand bucks. But the fact is that's very rare. Mm -hmm. And that is Hamilton on a Saturday night during a holiday period. True. And Hamilton is the Louis Vuitton of Broadway musicals. Hamilton is the Tinnies of Broadway musicals. Right. Hamilton is the first class seat on a luxury airline going all around the world. Like that right. content is exceptionally expensive. Mm-hmm. There are 40 Broadway shows when the theaters, when there are shows in all of them, which has been most of the time. I guarantee you, if you want to sit in a Broadway orchestra, I can get you one for 50 bucks. I can get you one for 60. You can right. wait in line. You can some shows pay 30 bucks through TDF. Mm -hmm. There are many different ways to get cheaper tickets for shows. Right. Many, but we focus only on the ones that are most expensive because they actually make better headlines. Right. But Broadway will always be expensive Mm -hmm. because it is just like, frankly, going to see the Boston Red Sox will always be expensive. It's like going to see, I don't know, Madonna. I say Madonna because I'm from the 80s. I don't know who's popular today. Um, like <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> th- that will, those people will always be expensive. True, true. Theater is not always expensive. Off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, regional. So the, t- the phrase theater tickets will always be expensive is actually a uh, fallacy. Right. Broadway tickets are expensive, but even in Broadway, they can be found for cheaper but look, if you want Hamilton tickets, yeah, buck up, they're right? Gonna, they're going to be expensive. Yeah, yeah, oh, no, wait, no. So wait, totally. And do you think? Do you think like the TKTS and do you think rush tickets and student rush? Do you think that's? Do you think that's known enough to the uh, to the average public for them yeah. to access those those seats? Yeah, I do. It, listen, it was even known to me in the '90s when I was here. There were two furs. There were coupons like laid out at your dry cleaner. There were all sorts of things. And now all you have to do is Google the name of the show. Yeah, right. And if you really want to get specific, Google the name of the show and discount tickets. Mm-hmm. Right. There are apps for this. There are all sorts of ways for you to get a get in cheaper. You go to that box office and you tell them you can't afford it. You tell right. them and they will, they may say you can sit in the balcony for 25 bucks or 30 bucks, but there are ways to get it in cheaper. The orchestra tickets will always be expensive for the yeah. top prices, just like first class tickets for airlines will always be expensive. Right. In some instances, sometimes producers come up with an idea like you did with co-conceiving Alter Boys and many other shows that you have to surrender IP in return for money that you're receiving. So how important is it for the producer to maintain intellectual property? 
Well, the theater is different than film and television in that our writers always own their stuff. And okay. as a producer, you're licensing it from them, but it's owned by them. You just get it for a period of time. Right. And it's very different from film. And, and you know, I've had this conversation with, with a lot of agents. And I said, what if I came to you with a very big check? Could I buy the property from you? Right. And most of the agents will say no. Right. It just because when a, when a theatrical show, play your musical hits, it's enormous. It's right. enormous. And more importantly than that for the playwright is that they control it. Mm -hmm. I can't change it without their permission. Right. If it's a screenplay, you know, there's that very famous quote. I don't remember who it was, Tennessee Williams, Ernest Hemingway, whoever it was that says, um, William Golding, who, who said um, writing a screenplay is like driving to the Nevada, California border and just throwing the screenplay over the border and driving back because they can do whatever the heck they want with it. Right. And in the theater, we can't. So the writer mm -hmm. really controls and they like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to play a little game with you where we get to know you, Ken Davenport, the person rather than Ken Davenport, the producer. All right. So what time do you wake up in the morning? Five o'clock. Favorite music theater show? Les Mis. Current favorite television show? Shark Tank. Ooh, do love that show. Kevin O'Leary, he's something. Unlimited budget, what show are you producing? Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, New cool. version. Ooh, man, that's good. I like that. Uh, which celebrity that you have met excited you the most? Wow, that is a very tricky question because mm -hmm. I've had the good fortune of meeting a heck of a lot of people. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go outside the theater industry and say Michael Jordan. Oh, have you golfed with him? No. Oh, no. I mean, but yeah. I did meet him. He came to see a show once, and it was quite something. Oh, that's awesome. I, I would love to golf with him. I'm sure it would cost me my rib by the end of it because he loves to gamble. But it'd be cool to see that. Uh, a, a performance you wish you could relive. Performance I wish I could relive. My Tony Award-winning revival of Once in This Island. Biggest pet peeve? People who don't do anything with ideas. I talk about them all the time. Last book you read? Get the title of it, but the last <laughs> book I read, because I, I, it's got a long title, and uh, you're, you're not going to... Uh, how to talk so kids will listen, and listen so kids will talk. I have a two-year-old. Yes, you do. I know. I see that on your Instagram and stuff like that. That's great. Um, your ideal Friday night? At home with my two-year-old and my wife. That's why I asked that. I was like, that's, I swear that's going to be his next answer. Country you'd like to visit? Country I'd like to visit. I've also had the China. Uh, yeah. What are you scared of? Nothing happening. What does a person need to be happy? Wow, these are some very tricky questions. I can't answer that because only that person knows what will make them happy. Right. Do you believe in love at first sight? I do. Uh, best advice you've ever given? You've ever been given, sorry. It was hows. Do something, anything. Don't care about the result, just do it. Do ghosts exist? Yes. Do aliens exist? Yes. And the last question, if you were ever given the opportunity to fly into space given today's technology, would you do it? Yes. Yes, and that's radio play. Wow, I love that. I, I, I love that because it keeps people on their toes and you get a really honest answer out of them. That's yeah, great. Yeah, it's fun. That's really fun. Um, so we'll only have a few more questions here for you. So 
you're the king of innovation, in my opinion. I mean, I've studied you and I've, I've followed you and what you do. And during an off-Broadway production of Alter Boys, you became the first producer to send audience members a follow-up email after they attended a show, which is now a method used widely across the industry. And then you announced, as we have talked about, that you streamed a performance of Daddy Long Legs. So where are we headed next in terms of innovation throughout this industry? Well, I've been predicting this for a while and it's been accelerated by the pandemic, but... You know, look, I grew up with video games, so I'm part of the video game generation. It was the home video game generation, even the arcade. That's my generation. That's the Mm -hmm. 80s. My dad used to take me to an arcade, give me a roll full of quarters, and I played Pac-Man, right? (laughs) The Atari came out, and I got one, and I was 10, 11, 12 years old and went through all those game systems. I grew up with my hand on a joystick controller interacting and having entertainment, right? Right. And now video games are what they are today. And you've grown up probably like it's just been a part of your life and everyone, it's like Mm -hmm. another form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. The next generation of entertainers, we're joking ourselves if we think that the interaction you had isn't going to affect the type of entertainment you create. Mm-hmm. You're going to create things where people are more involved that control the, the destiny, the joystick, if you will, of the hero, that they feel like they're a part of that story, mm-hmm. right? That's what first player games are all about. Like you're a part of it. And then you're collaborating with other people all over the world. Right. And if we don't think that effect is going to affect our theater going, we're crazy. And The other thing, so you're going to see a shift in that. You're going to see how do we involve the audience in the actual production itself. Right. The other thing is that your generation, next generation, like they are the DIY generation. They are, I can shoot a film on my phone. I can make an album in my living room with my Mac. Like I can and release it and distribute it and win festivals and make money. I can do all this stuff. So the theater industry has been very different to be on Broadway You've had to get a Broadway theater, kiss a bunch of rings, like placate gatekeepers. And what's going to happen, and we're already seeing it right now, of course, is that some one of these gatekeepers are going to tell the next generation of theater theater makers, Mm -hmm. no, you can't have a theater for your very cool audience-involving creation. Mm -hmm. No, you can't do that. And this generation is going to look at that gatekeeper and say, wait a minute, I don't understand. I've never been told I couldn't create something or distribute something my entire life. Mm -hmm. I don't need you. I'm going to do this myself. And that's how the walls of Broadway come crumbling down. And great theater exists in a warehouse, on a sidewalk, in an office building, online, all over the place. Because... No longer are, is this generation going to put up with the idea that we have to wait for someone to say yes before you can have a show on Broadway. They're right. going to say, who cares? And we're seeing it right now. I mean, theater is everywhere. Uh, online, in one-person shows, on sidewalks, in storefront windows, I'm seeing stuff like. Right. And I think that's just going to be accelerated. That's where we're headed. When you accepted the Tony for Once on this Island, you started by saying, this is a business where you hear no an awful lot. And you ended the speech by saying, all you people out there who dream of doing what I do and what everyone else in this room does, do not stop asking your question. It's amazing what can happen when you get your yes. So how do you turn those no's into yeses? Well, 
it's just like hitting golf balls every morning. You you hit enough of them, and slowly but surely, you start to figure out how to hit it longer and straighter. Yeah. Well. So the best way to do it is to just keep on doing it. Right. You know, I say this to actors: the best way to get better at auditioning is to audition a ton until you get numb to it, until you figure, oh wait, I got better feedback on that one. What I do? I did this song instead of this one. Or when raising money, oh wait, I stopped talking and listened to the person instead of just rambling on for a while. Oh wait, I asked for more than I needed and then I got what I needed. Like, interesting. Like, mm -hmm. you just get better at it. Right. And you have to be objective and you have to learn and you have to follow, but you just have to keep doing it over and over and over again. You get to your yes by get, getting a thousand no's. Right. Because a thousand no's means you're just learning and practicing. It's my two-year-old. She couldn't get up off those two feet to walk for the longest time. She kept falling on her butt. Didn't stop her. Right. Just kept going and going. Sometimes I was like, oh, geez, don't try it again. <laughs> no. <laughs> she did. Well, I think that's a perfect place to, to end the interview. Um, I really appreciate you taking your time. Uh, as I say, you're, 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 the f I mean, you're, you're creating the future of what we're doing. You've started. You've made mandates in this industry that continue to shape what it is. And, and seriously, I can't thank you enough for being here. So seriously, Ken, I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, thanks for doing this. And thanks for promoting theater making. This has been a Brown Stuff production.